Okay, so let's talk about what do we do <laughs> in the face of these systems and the way it's playing out. Uh, how, how do we respond as Christians? And I, I want to put a note here at the beginning, but also, Lord willing, at the end, and it, it's faith and love, right? We, the Lord is not threatened, right? Peter just preached, kiss the son lest he be angry with you powers that be you think you think you think you can impose your will on God and his world no kiss the son uh, lest he crush you so God rules he is not threatened his are not thwarted uh, he's you know one of the great things about being God I would imagine is you're never anxious can you imagine never being anxious that's very foreign. Uh, he always gets what he wants. Uh, and uh, what makes the gospel good news is that what he wants is good. So he's not just some tyrant, right? He's the sovereign king. He is accomplishing what he means to accomplish. He's made promises to us, both as individuals and as his church, that we need to have confidence in. And we need to engage the world with confidence. And part of what uh, analyzing these things does is, is it helps rightly say, that's insane. Right? So, okay, I don't need to go along with that. Let me stand in truth. Let me commend the truth. Let, let me live out the truth. Rather than, you know, there's been gross overuse of the word winsome. The best way to be winsome is actually live the truth of God in a compelling way. And the Bible talks about that, that uh, you would shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, right? As we know the truth of God and live it out, uh, it, it's compelling. Always be ready to give a defense if anyone has, asks, what's the reason for the hope that's within you? Which presupposes it's evident that you have hope. In a world, in a system that's designed for hopelessness, when you have hope, interesting, um, Rod Dreher has written this book, Live Not by Lies, which I haven't had a chance to read yet. Um, but I know part of what he talks about is in the Soviet Union, one of the things they smuggled was Tolkien's books because they're, and it helped to nurture hope, right? Because it's coming out of a profoundly biblical system. But. So, so we have to trust the Lord. The Lord's here. He's good. He's not threatened. Uh, and then and we need to act in love. Love him. Love our neighbors. <clears throat> So, uh, a few points under that. Uh, we do need to recognize how pervasive this is. It's everywhere. Part of that means recognizing where we may have bought into some of these values, some of these presuppositions. We're all catechized by the culture, right? It's, uh, uh, David Wells defines worldliness as whatever makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem abnormal. And so, worldliness can change from generation to generation. But, but we've all been taught by worldliness. It's like, well, just everybody thinks this way. And then you read something in the Bible, and you're like, huh, that seems to... Oh, what do, I, what do I do with that, you know? So recognizing, okay, have I bought into these unbiblical ideas? Uh, recognizing that, that even though there may have legitimate critique, like that's a problem, that's an injustice, that's... The ultimate intention is actually not good. It is actually destructive, Okay. So, uh, one of the points I want to make is that um, 
critical theory, uh, there's, there's a man named Peter Jones. He's written a number of very good books. One is called The Other Worldview. Oneism versus Twoism, I think is what it's called. And he's pointed out, look, there's basically two religions in the world. There's Christianity and there's paganism. Uh, Christianity is twoism. There's a creator and there's a creature, there's distinction. And then that creator has filled the world with distinctions. There's male and female. There's good and evil. There's day and night. There's like all kinds of differences. Paganism is essentially a flattening out of distinctions. <clears throat> and so most religions are pagan at the end of the day. C.S. Lewis talks about this. If you haven't read his space trilogy, and especially that hideous strength, uh, he talks about, you know, uh, at the end of the day, there's no choice for anyone who won't either be a Christian or a pagan. Okay? Um, and so Jones is talking about this in the context of sexuality, meaning especially male-female, but, but also implications of that. And he says, what's often not seen in the debate on sexuality is that we are also in the presence of two gospels, right? Two options to fix what's wrong in the world. The one is pagan and preaches redemption as liberation from the creator and repudiation of creation structures. Doesn't that sound like critical theory, right? The other, Christian, proclaims redemption as reconciliation with the creator and the proclamation of Jesus. So in a pagan world, which is what we're increasingly in, and I do think we're going to see more um, bizarre and demonic activity as if, if we keep going down this path. Uh, a truncated gospel of personal salvation will no longer do. Sexuality within the context of creation must be announced as an essential part of the Christian message of reconciliation with God and glad submission to his own. So he's saying basically, <clears throat> it's not enough to say God loves you and has one of your life. It's the path to reconciliation with God. That is the gospel. Okay? We're not adding to the gospel. But we're saying in a pagan world, part of helping them to make sense of the Christian gospel is to re recognize that there's a distinction between us and the creator, that there is a creator, that he's made uh, the universe to function in a certain way. Uh, and so paganism, androgyny, has always been a design feature of paganism. The pagan priests often presented as androgynous. And, and we see, you see that increasingly in our society where people are embracing androgyny. They're minimizing the distinction between male and female. Uh, in dress, in appearance, um, in mannerisms, in values. <clears throat> How many of these celebrities are raising their children? You know, it's like, oh, look, my child's gender nonconforming. No, you're gender nonconforming, <laughs> right? It's like, uh, I think it was Doug Wilson said, when somebody has a vegan cat, we know who's making the choices, right? <laughs> it's not the cat. <laughs> So, um, but th this is a pagan view, okay, if we're going to reject Christianity. Now, he would, Jones would identify Islam and Judaism as corruptions of Christianity. They still have kind of a two-ism structure, but most religions are actually pagan. So, one of the big fruits of paganism is egalitarianism, okay? And again, this is taking part of what Christianity says. Christianity does teach equality in certain ways. And it's totalizing it. Everything flattening, right? Against the hierarchy, against the distinction. And, and you know, so this thing about marriage is necessary for marriage in certain ways. 
But if you're, if you're entirely equal, that's called homosexuality. You need differentiation. Right? Let alone, if you and your husband or wife aren't different, um, you would have a very lame relationship. <laughs> like, it's the differences that are so much of what make, and that's, just, that's not marriage, that's every relationship. This person is other than me, right? There, there's equality. Like, I, I can relate to Colin as a man in a way I couldn't relate to a horse. <laughs> or like, you know, there's that level of equal, but we're different. But where we enjoy things, we're friends, Right? Lewis talked about that. Friends stand side by side and look out and enjoy something together. So the equality but the diversity, the difference. Egalitarianism gets rid of the difference, says the difference is bad, especially if it involves any power. Right? God says, no, 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 I've filled the world with power structures for good. And you need to exercise and submit to power in faith. And we'll talk about that, but, um, but that, that, that egalitarian instinct fuels envy at such a high level. Do you remember a few years ago, the 99 and the 1, and the people camping out downtown protesting, the one percenters, right? It's envy. At the end of the day, it's envy. Do they not have any valid critiques? I'm sure there's some. Did it do anything productive? Absolutely not, Right? Did it produce godliness in their lives? Did it spur them on into industry to achieve? <laughs> no. It's just, no, feel, feel sorry for yourself and blame others. Not going to do. Uh, one way that this has played out in the church is this whole, and I've seen this in the abuse literature, is power over, power under. That's a phrase that I've seen in Greg Boyd. If you know Greg at all, he was, may still be a pastor in Minneapolis. Uh, he's, he's like the anti-piper. It's really interesting. The same denomination but Greg Boyd is an open theist, right? So it's like, how can you have Piper, who talks about the sovereignty of God all the time, and Boyd, who denies it? Boyd says, God knows everything that can be known, but he can't know our choices until we make them. Therefore, he doesn't know the future. That is supposed to preserve your um, free will. It's supposed to encourage you, because if something bad happens to you, God didn't know it was going to happen either. Like, that's not very encouraging. Uh, <clears throat> but he used this framework of biblical power righteously exercises only power under. God has only given you power to serve others and to benefit others. If you benefit yourself, that's wrong. And if you have power over, that's wrong. So you might have a, a, you know, a title of power over, but it's just given to you to come under. Right? And, and the, again, that rhetorically is actually fairly effective. People are like, yeah, that's right, that's good, because love, love doesn't impose, right? And actually, Diane Langberg has written, Jesus used power not to rule, but to influence, to invite, to welcome, and to transform. And, in, and so you see what's happening is there's this false dichotomy. You're, you're pitting things against each other that the Bible doesn't. Jesus didn't rule? Have you read the Gospels? It rules all over the place. He commands his disciples. He commands the demons. He commands nature. He commands, you know, bukes the authorities. He, like, he's ruling all over the place. He's accepting worship. 
right? He, so to say that he didn't exercise power over, silly. And, and I think where you see this is in what has been made of the idea of servant leadership. Servant leadership is a basically biblical phrase, but what it's been turned into is the way that you lead is by serving the most. So it's all service and no leadership. Whereas I think actually, obviously service is part of leadership, but I think actually what it's saying is that your leadership is your service to God. Which does include serving the people that you have authority over. But if as a parent, your children to do things and discipline them when they and um, educate them in the truth and, right, if you don't exercise directive authority, you're failing. You've been entrusted with that responsibility by God. And to fail, fail to fulfill an, a responsibility we've been given by God is sin. It's neglect, right? Um, and so if you conceive of authority as entirely service, meaning um, not doing anything that would in any way benefit you or in any way be perceived as directive over someone else, you have a hard time. You can't. You can't. And I think this is part of why uh, we've seen about this in various contexts, including on Sunday morning, a lot of men have struggled to lead their families. It's because they struggled to have a positive vision for leadership. Because they've been told that that kind of directive thing is bad. It's hierarchy. It's right hierarchy. And, and they've pitted things against each other that the Bible doesn't pit against each other. So at, at, wherever you've been given authority by God, you need to recognize that and step into that and exercise it in faith as service to God and others. And, and here's a, a provocative statement. If you don't do that for personal benefit, you'll sin. Because in Hebrews 11, it says... Uh, whoever would come to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith essentially includes reward. So you have to do what you do seeking benefit. As God defined, this is not prosperity gospel, right? But it is not wrong for you to benefit from where you have authority and responsibility. It's just, it needs to be just gain, not unjust gain. Righteous gain, not selfish gain. Okay? But the idea that authority only exists to come under those that are entrusted to it and make them flourish sounds appealing. And it, and it is part of what authority is to do, right? You do, like, parents... Uh, my Josiah saw recently the cost of raising a child to 18. He was like, holy cow, Dad, that's a lot of money. You know? like, he doesn't pay the bills, right? I pay the bills. It's my cost for him to live. Just like it was my dad's cost for me to live. Right? It, like, that's part of having authority and responsibility. 
you bear the cost for the good of others. And you benefit. Right? Are there no benefits to being a husband or a father or a parent or a business owner or, a, you know, various roles that we have? Of course. There's righteous gain and unrighteous gain. Uh, and so it's, it's not, you know, when I tell Aaron to take out the garbage, that's directive. He needs to obey me. I'm not too concerned about his feelings other than that he needs to do it in faith, <laughs> right? But <clears throat> if it's not his preference at the moment, it's like, well, it's my preference, so you need to do it, right? Um, but I'm actually loving him. I'm actually see- seeking his good. I'm teaching him responsibility. I'm teaching him right views. Like, there's all kinds of things that are going on there. But I'm benefiting. I don't have to take out the garbage. Is that wrong? No. No, it's not. Now, can I do that for wrong reasons? Yeah, do it for right reasons. Yeah. So there's, there's an important thing there in power dynamics and in views of power and servant leadership that we have to understand. So, you know, even so the classic example is Jesus washing his disciples' feet. What did he do? He commanded them, go do this, get the room ready, make these things, right? Sit down. I'm going to wash your feet. Okay, you call me Lord and teacher, and you're right, and you should because I am. And then, right? And Peter says, don't wash my, but my whole body. No, you're wrong rebukes him, right? Jesus is leading the whole time that he's serving. So we want to pit things against each other that the Bible doesn't, okay? But in a critical theory world, that leadership's wrong. It's bad. It's hierarchy. It's oppressive. We got to have a category for a right leadership um, that is also service, okay? Someone who's just power is what you call a servant, right? You've seen Downton, (laughs) They do whatever they're told to do. They're servants. They're power. And servant is a noble role. It's not a bad thing. It's just not what is in view there. So so we have to see power as a positive good. And I just put a bunch of verses there that speak about strength and and power and and how we're to exercise it and how we're to aim for it. Um, And that means where God has given us um, providentially, relationships and responsibilities, we ought to seek to exercise power for good in every sphere. So, in your work, in your home, politically, at church, with your neighbors, right? What has God given me that I can exercise for good? Okay. And, and this, too, is one of the real challenges in our day with social media and the Internet is we're more superficially aware of problems in the world than anyone in history. And it's, one of, it's part of what's being overwhelming about being a modern is because you're just constantly, and this outrage, and this tragedy, and this injustice, right? Now, whether or not those presentations are true, that's one question. But the other is you, you literally can't, and this sounds unfeeling, but you literally can't care about all that. Like you can't, you don't have the capacity for that. And more to the board does not make you responsible for all of that. So the closer you are to a situation relationally or geographically or through other providential factors, the more responsibility you have for it. Okay? Uh, So if there were a tornado 
that came through Millersville, we'd have a lot of responsibility. If it came through Apex, North Carolina, we'd have some because we have a sister church there, right? If it came through Tuscaloosa, I don't know anybody there. Maybe you do, right? Maybe your sister lives there. Well, then you would go help. You know, like we, there's varying levels of, and we're not God, and we don't have unlimited resources, including emotional resources. Let me care about everything. No, you just can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's exhausting. Critical theory is exhausting. It's so tiring. Like it's just, oh, it's constant outrage and injustice. Um, but, but to see power as good, to see hierarchy as good, rightly understood. Okay. Uh, so egalitarianism, feminism, that's one of the fruits. That's in male-female relationships. I, I put here justice. One of, the, one of the things I think is that our views of justice have been feminized um, in sinful ways. So God has designed men and women for different purposes. And part of a man's, part of masculinity and leadership and part of femininity is, is a prioritization of relationship. And so what happens, you see this in churches, like church history is full of this. When churches ordain women to be pastors, what inevitably happens, like that's already a step of liberalizing, right? But um, what's actually happened up to that point and what happens beyond that is uh, the people who would resist that and fight that are seen as bad because they create conflict, which destroys relationship, which goes against the feminine orientation to the world, right? And so we have to get rid of those people. But the people who are nice and seemingly cooperative, they seem to, right? And, and so often that's how false teachers present themselves. They're nice. They're cooperative. Um, you know, in his day, Spurgeon, he talked about women of both sexes in the pulpit. And, uh, and he was talking about how the, the critique of the clergy is that so many of them had very effeminate instincts and relationships to the world. One of the aspects of masculinity is to stand on something even at the cost of relationship. I don't say that women can't do that or don't do that at points, but it's easier for a man to do. And it's part of a masculine calling is to say, ah, uh, here's the truth, Right? Uh, and we'll, we'll actually get to that a little bit. So, but that's, that's important. It's important. It's not like, uh, you know, if you're a woman, it's if you embrace error because you're relational. No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the strength of relationship can play out in the sin of prioritizing it wrongly. So women need to be discerning too. You need to see these dynamics, recognize them as good exercise authority in faith, in leading standing, calling things out, bearing the blows of taking the unpopular stand. That's so much of where our culture is collapsing, is men who are unwilling to take the cost of standing, okay? Uh, and so as Christian men, we have a real opportunity there. Um, but the feminism, which, which is a form of egalitarianism, that's, that's a big part of it. And then just the whole idea of deconstruction um, like I said, this is a destructive project, but I want, especially like the ex-evangelical, like the Josh Harris and all that, just to recognize that that's a, that's a fruit of critical theory. Um, it's, it's usually uh, sexual sin. That's usually one of the big ones. 
I want to uh, sin in this way, and I know that Christianity will hold me back from that. So I'll just gradually jettison my Christianity so I can get the sexual pleasure I desire. I mean, that's, that's too clear, but that's so much of it, right? Well, I've, I've come to a new place, realized I focused on sin too much, or I, you know, whatever. Okay, here's what you're really after, justification for what you want. Um, so these things are going on. They'll continue to go on. As they go on, they're going to inevitably blame the church, right? Oh, it's the purity movement. Oh, it's the patriarchy. Oh, it's a... Are there, are there no things? Of course there's things to critique in the church, right? We're, we're exclusively a club for sinners, right? Sinners, sinners are being sanctified, but there, there's no sinlessly perfect people here. Um, but to say, well, that's why. No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, so we need to recognize those things. We need to act justly, right? Micah 6 is a verse often brought out, and he has told you, a man, and what is good, what does the Lord require, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You must be just in everything that you do. One of the great things about justice is it applies to everything. Uh, and it applies in ways that we often fail to realize. You know, one of the things about our confession of faith is it has a chapter on oaths and vows. And people, who, who takes oaths and vows? It's like, well, do you have a credit card? You ever up on the app store? Are you married? Have, you know, like, you've taken lots of oaths and vows. You sign a check, right? Anytime you sign your name to something, that's an oath or a vow. I promise to do this. Right? Our world's built on these things. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, the Lord detests unequal weights and measures. He detests sinful partiality. The Bible has a category for the oppressed tend to be uh, women, children, the poor, the sojourner. And you are not to show partiality to them. You're to set aside part of your field so that they can uh, glean, like Ruth. But you better not take their side in court. You better be impartial. You better listen to the witnesses. Right? So the Bible re recognizes the reality of injustice and oppression and, and doesn't change the scales. It's unjust to... to take the wheel of privilege and then say, okay, well, this person is more oppressed, and so we need to put bounds on this side of the scale just to balance things out. No. No, what's true? What's just? What's impartial? Okay? So we, we need to be just, and, and you know, I've quoted this verse in a number of contexts. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is just. Justice is um, a manifestation of his character. Uh, so I've seen this in the abuse literature where they're talking about, you know, Jesus, he identifies with the oppressed. I'm sorry, he just doesn't. He doesn't. He, he cares for the hurting. 
He doesn't identify with the oppressed and say, let me take up your cause. No, no, no. He says, here's the truth. Here's my cause. Here's how I can work redemptively in your life. That's different. He's not like a super Che Guevara. <laughs> or, you know, here comes you know, Pancho Villa or whoever, you know, whoever your, your liberator is. Um, that is actually liberation theology, um, which you can go to Lancaster Theological Seminary and get if you want to. Uh, it's very interesting. But Jesus doesn't identify with the oppressed. He saves the oppressed, cares for them. Okay. Um, but he, yeah, Th it's an important distinction. Um, Oxford English Dictionary defines justice as the quality of being just or righteous, the principle of just dealing, so it's what we do, and the exhibition of this quality or principle in action, so just conduct, integrity, and rectitude, so that if you are a just man or woman, you will act justly. You'll swear to your hurt. You'll fulfill your obligations. You'll uh, love the people God calls you to love. You'll, you know, just there's a million manifestations of justice. And there's plenty of injustice in the world, okay? And as you have responsibility for people, you may need to address injustice. Uh, but the idea of being an advocate for the oppressed as like a, a category of life is not a biblical emphasis, um, which we can talk about. But so justice is, Aquinas, a habit whereby a man renders to each one his due by a constant and perpetual will. You contrast that with Rawls who's saying justice is fairness. Are we all getting the same outcomes? Justice is much more about process, character and process. Are we all the same playing field? Are the rules the same, right? If, if um, Gordon and I play basketball and his rim is 15 feet in the air and mine is six feet in the air, that's not justice, right? Like, it's gonna be much easier for me to score on the six foot. Uh, that would be uh, a structural problem. But, uh, and of course, those sorts of things do exist in the world. Justice uh, plays out in things like due process and um, authorities. So this is part of, you know, advocacy. You do see advocacy in Scripture. So Job talks about how he cared for the suffering. Um, but that was very much related to his roles, both as an elder in the city, a person the obligation of the wealthy in God's kingdom is to care for those who, who don't have what they need, right? Uh, and so that, that's part of, well, actually, we're going to get to that. I won't, I won't go ahead. But it's recognizing, you know, so much of what goes on in the Internet and social media would be stuck if people would say, am I, do, am I rightly involved in this situation? Should I know that this accusation is being made? Do, do I have, am I going to give an account before God for how I respond to this? Right? In the, in the standpoint of God saying, you should have done something about this and you didn't. Or am I being a busybody? Am I being a gossip? Am I being a slanderer? Am I involving myself in things that the Lord doesn't call me to? The Bible talks about that uh, as someone who takes a passing dog by the ears Right? That's so much of social media. Um, let's stir up a controversy and bring all these people in who really have no business being involved in it. Like the Lord has put authorities in the world to deal with things. 
And, and as I've gotten older and my responsibilities have gotten larger, uh, I just don't have time or energy to get riled up about these things. I'm like, my plate's full. Like, who has time to be outraged all the time about all this stuff out here? Like, don't you have enough on your plate to be concerned with? And are you neglecting what the Lord has actually given you to be engaging in this stuff out here, right, to be an influencer? Um, it's, it's very appealing, right, because you might not be doing well in the text that you're in, and this might be a way to be a, a heroic advocate. or You know, there's just lots of ways that these things play out. So recognizing, okay, who's authorized by God to engage a situation? What, what's the extent of their jurisdiction? Um, you can have overlapping civil authorities, church of glory. Who are the witnesses? Witness is a huge category biblically. An accusation is an accusation. It's not a witness. Until it's established by other witnesses, it's just an accusation. Okay? Biblically. Impartiality, we talked about that. Consequences. If, if evil doing has been done, there should be consequences. Okay, so just thinking about justice biblically, there's more to it, or categories. Um, we need to, so we need to act justly, we need to affirm power and authority. Uh, this is a significant point of where gratitude comes into play, I think. Because if we don't see power and authority as good, and if we can't affirm them uh, in our lives and in meaningful ways, we're not going to be able to walk in faith. How can you submit to someone or how can you exercise authority if you don't see them as good things? Right? So where the Lord has given you a responsibility, you need to see that as a good thing so that you can do it in faith. Not begrudgingly, right? not complaining, um, but, but recognizing this is, I've been entrusted by the Lord with something important. And so I need to do this for his glory and for the good of the, whoever's affected by my leadership and care authority. Um, and conversely, oh, the Lord has put these people over me in various contexts. That's good. We submit to and follow that with faith. Instead of um, critiquing all the time. Or um, like that, that's the other thing I've seen, um, it's super easy to have a critique, how much a talk radio would go away, if people couldn't have a critique about something that's not their responsibility, whether it's politics or sports or, right? Leave the Eagles, did blah, 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 blah. Okay. <laughs> you really think you know better than these guys who have given their lives to this and, you know, that, that, that easily gets into, I mean, grumbling is a sin in scripture, right? That's one of the reasons the Israelites were punished in the wilderness. And, and so if we don't see authority as a good thing, right? Recognizing no earthly authority is perfect. Um, and so, of course, there's valid critique. But if we don't see it as a good thing and say, okay, Lord, thank you for Right? You want your children, I remember years ago uh, at the father-daughter camp out, Peter taught on discipline to the girls. He said, girls, and he went through Hebrews, you see how it says the Lord disciplines those he loves? 
And if you weren't disciplined, you would be illegitimate. Your daddies are loving you when they discipline you. And when they do that, you should say, thank you, daddy. Right? Talk about a revolutionary concept, but thoroughly biblical. Right? That if you don't discipline your children, you hate them. If you, you know, if you give a child, I just saw a not the bee, a, a dad, I think it was a dad, put $10,000 and two Oreos before a child and said, which one do you want? He, he went for the Oreos, right? Now he's sure. Yeah, 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 like several times, went for the Oreos. And the argument was, that's why we don't let children choose their gender. Right? Like, <laughs> you got to think about judgment. Like, part of parents' job is to exercise authority in ways that contravene the will of their children and say, no, uh-uh, you don't get to do that. That's not right. That's not good. This is good. This is right. Choose this. Right? And the parent who doesn't do that is hating their child. We had friends who, who decided that they would never say no to their child. It's like, man, you hate your child. You hate her. Not loving her. So we have to see these things as good. Doesn't mean they can't be used for bad, right? I'm not saying uh, they can and are. Uh, but they are good. And so for us to exercise and submit, um, Romans 14, 3, uh, 23 is another good connection on that. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And Paul's talking about that in the context of what you eat and the weak and the strong conscience. But, of course, it's, it's a uh, broadly applicable rule. If you do it in unbelief, it's sin, even if objectively, right? So it's not sin to drink alcohol, but if in your conscience you carry a conviction that it is and you drink it and you've sinned, not by drinking alcohol, by going against your conscience, right? Same way. So if you're like, oh, guess I better discipline these kids, right? That's not faith. You're sinning in your discipline. Conversely, if you're like, okay, yeah, it's not like I love to discipline, but okay, Lord, help me to do this for their good, for your glory, right? Um, it glorifies him. It's a good work. So, uh, we see, so we see authority and power and all that in creation. Um, in Genesis 1 with the dominion mandate. In Genesis 2 with the command of the man to work and keep the garden. Uh, with the creation of the woman to be a helper to him in that. The psalmist talks about uh, the earth given to the children of men. Right? He's given him dominion over the works of your hands and the earth he's given to the children of men. So that is part of the fundamental human orientation to the world is to exercise dominion. Right? It's why you like to do various things. You like to bring order. You know? um, I always enjoyed construction because at the end of the day you can stand back and say, look, I, I built that. As long as you do well. Like, sometimes you're like, I don't know. I built a chair once in YWAM, and a friend sat in it, and it just went, <laughs> blew up. Uh, I didn't want to own that one. But. Uh, so creation, family, I uh, just put Ephesians 5 here, right? Various levels of authority and submission that we're to walk out as part of God's good design. The church, um, you see it in Acts 20 with the command to pastors to shepherd and protect same thing in 1 Peter 5. Um, so just notice, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. 
That's authority. That's leadership, right? Not under compulsion, because that would be unbelief. Ah, oh, I've got to do this. But willingly, from the heart. That, that's how we're all to, right? You know, one of the great verses about gain is, why did Jesus go to the cross? For the joy set before him. Jesus went to the cross for gain. Uh, civil government, you see, obviously, the authorities have been appointed by God. And you also see that they are his servants. So the state is not independent of God. Uh, if you want to talk about two kingdoms theology, um, okay, yeah, the state is a kingdom. It's just got the same king, right? Jesus reigns over church and state. There's no realm that's independent of his rule. And look at, you know, at David at the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawned like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, the rain that makes grass to spout, sprout from the earth. That's a pretty positive vision for civil government, right? I don't think we'd ordinarily be inclined to think of a, our presidents as <laughs> the morning light, um, but wouldn't that be glorious, right? And don't we need men to rise up and rule that way? So uh, one of the, there's a couple of things with uh, authority that I wanted to call out. One is the duty of protection. And so Psalm 72 and Proverbs 31, you see both uh, are in the context of the king, that the king was responsible before God for the well-being of his subjects, and so we can, think, we can tend to think of a monarchy as, ah, oh, it's just all this unaccountable. But if you understand it rightly, uh, that's a lot of people to give an account to for God. Was there justice in your land, king? Did you protect them? Did you defend them? Did you ensure that there were fair economic transactions going on and that the rich weren't cheating the poor and that, you know, like the sojourners weren't being taken advantage of? That was all the king's responsibility, Right? And, and he, he bears that duty before God. And uh, Rosaria Butterfield wrote in a recent article, because she was, um, you know, she was a lesbian English professor at Syracuse, uh, became a Christian, became a pastor's wife, became a homeschooling, exclusive psalmody. Like, she's a very strong person. Um, and she's a great writer. And um, I, I love her stuff. If you read her hospitality book, you might be a little overwhelmed. Uh, don't feel like you need to do everything she says. But there's, she just came out with a book I'm really interested to read. But she, she's talking about, so she left this role. She had, and she loved it. She was like, I was very happy. I loved my relationships. I loved, I loved the, you know, tutoring students. I, you know, I wasn't complaining. Uh, my life got worse when I became a Christian, right? She said, I lost everything but the dog. Okay. And so she's, uh, but she talks about why Jesus is worth it. That's not where it ends. But she says, one of the fair criticisms of my choosing the role of a submitted wife over and against returning to Syracuse to serve as an English professor is that in doing so, I'm showing su my support of biblical patriarchy. Guilty as true. I do not support biblical patriarchy because of the belief that men are good. I embrace biblical patriarchy because men are not good, Jeremiah 17.9. Because men are not good, I am grateful to encourage and stand behind a godly redeemed man who defends and protects the church and his family against ravaging wolves. Okay, so she's clearly not, you could take that, her saying men are not good. If, the, 
if all men were not good, then there wouldn't be a man to stand behind, right? So that's not a, a universal statement, but there's a vision there of, hey, hierarchy's good. God structured the world with authority for good, right? Including protection, provision, leadership. Um, so that's part of it. The other is uh, resistance. Uh, I could only find one instance in Scripture where God commanded people to submit to tyranny, and that was when he was executing judgment on them and sending them into exile. Everywhere else, what's held up in Scripture is resistance to tyranny, resistance to abuse and oppression. Now, some instances are easier than others, okay? But the Bible is filled of examples of people resisting tyranny. So Deuteronomy 22 is about the presumption of innocence that a woman is a terrible situation, right? If a woman's raped, it's if it's in the country, she's punished because she has the presumption of innocence that she would have cried out and no one heard her, then she is punished because she should have resisted, right? That's the implication. She should have cried out. There would have been people around who could have helped her. And, and so you see that in Daniel, uh, you see it, even First Peter 3, you know, this is sometimes, I think, taken as, you know, wives, if your husband's disobeying, just, well, just be meek and mild and go along, which is not what he's saying. He's saying, you assess their behavior, they're not obeying the word, and so here's your agenda for how you work for change and how you hope for God, right? You do it in faith. You do it respectfully and purely. Um, without a word, not so, which literally obviously can't mean you never say a word to him. <laughs> it means you don't uh, wear him down with nagging. In a situation that is fearful and you work from a position of uh, the words that have used throughout church history is superior and inferior. It's not talking about value. It's talking about rank, Right? We are inferior to the president or the governor, or, right? These people have authority. So how does someone in a position of inferiority work for change in that place, right? Well, here it's talking about a wife. Uh, and, and the great example, I think, in Scripture of that is Abigail. So if you, you know the story of Abigail, she has this worthless husband, right, Nabal. Everybody's saying over and over again, he's a worthless man. She's saying he's a worthless man. And David comes, and David's on the run from uh, Saul, and he's got all of them, and they've been protecting uh, Nabal's flocks. And so David comes and says, hey, can you give us some food? Show us some hospitality, let alone payment for what we've done. And Nabal's servants say, yeah, yeah, like these guys have been a wall to us. They've been so helpful. And Nabal is a worthless man. He's selfish. He's proud. Uh, he accuses David, right, of being... Uh, I forget exactly how he worded it, but being basically an ungrateful, insubordinate, um, he disrespects him, basically spits in his face, and says, no, I'm not going to give you anything. So David says, okay, let's go kill them all, right? Abigail hears about this. So she's got two men who are sinning. She's the inferior in rank, but she has authority, in her home as a, as a wife and mother. She has a responsibility of protection for the household and the servants and the children, and, right? And so she disobeys her husband's instruction. Husband says, don't give anything to David. Disobeys him and goes out to David and, and intercedes with him 
And she does it so skillfully that the Lord uses it to convict David of his sinful response to the ways he was sinned against so that David repents of his sinful attitude, right? This is Abigail. Uh, and so Abigail is an agent of change in David's heart. She protects her entire household. And then she comes back and skillfully interacts with her drunk, worthless husband. Uh, and the Lord strikes him dead and he dies. And then she becomes David's wife. And so she goes from, which, okay, obviously we're not praising polygamy, but she goes from having a terrible husband to having David as her husband and being part of the royal household, right? She goes from being under the threat of death to having protected and saved her entire household by God's grace. And, and the, Protestantism has had this doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which is where if you have authority, that's one of the ways that like our sheriff has been a huge protection to us. And, and the DA, they're like, we're not going to enforce any of the governor's COVID stuff. That's the lesser magistrate. These people have authority. They've been entrusted by God with authority where they would ordinarily want to uh, follow the leadership of the higher authorities. But at the end of the day, they have the right to say, we have to obey God rather than man. And I have people who are looking to me for protection. And I need to protect them because the way you're trying to exercise your authority is tyrannical. Okay? And so we need to both see authority as good so we can submit and exercise it. But we also have to have categories of there are real oppressions, there are real tyrannies, there's real times to disobey in faith. But that disobedience isn't just you decide that you don't want to do whatever they say, right? It's, okay, what, where do I have authority and responsibility? Uh, you know, when the governor put out the ban on work and we were doing our videos, uh, at one point we talked about, look, we, I know uh, unbiblical, right? He can't do that. And in the Bible, to take a man's millstone is to take his life. You take away a person's work, you're taking away their life because that, that's why they call it a livelihood, right? You need to work to provide, to eat, to live. To... And so to take away someone's ability to work is a big deal. And the standard that they were using was not a biblical standard. And so uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but it's basically uh, you can, in faith, resist that command from the governor to not work. Now, the governor still has a sword, and so he could exercise penalties, right? So th these, these interactions with authority and tyrannical authority are not perfectly simple. There's challenges in it. And we have to be aware of the proclivity in our hearts to just despise and off. Okay? We need to see authority as good. But we also need to see there's all kinds of examples in Scripture, and these are just a few, of, of people standing and saying, no, no, no we're not going to go along with tyranny. Okay? Especially when it concerns... Um, gospel fidelity and life. Uh, you see those especially uh, the Hebrew midwives. Um, there's, there's quite a few. <clears throat> there's a right way to resist tyranny. Um, that obviously is a huge topic we could talk about sometime. Uh, just, you know, Naboth, he resisted Ahab's land. I think he was right to do so, but he was killed. Like, Ahab was the king, he could kill him. <laughs> like, so, okay, you exposed the rot in the palace, and now you're dead, right? Like, so, the, 
resisting tyranny isn't some romantic thing, like it can go very badly. Um, we have to act with truthfulness and integrity. That's obviously related to justice. Uh, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. So no, you, you, can, you cannot, you must not use the pronouns. You must not. You don't, you don't lie to people. You don't go along with wickedness. That's not loving to encourage someone in a lie, right? And so many of these things, you know, it's interesting to see so often when denominations go liberal, about 80% of them are conservative, but they just don't stand up and fight. And I don't mean like warfare, I mean, no. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna do it. And, uh, and you see when people do, how often people rally around them. Oh yeah, me too. Right? We need to tell the truth. We need to stand for the truth. We need to not go along with the lies. It's not loving um, to lie to people. And it's not loving to, um, to buy into unjust views of justice. Uh, so, Having the integrity, and we'll, and we'll get to this in a minute. There's a man named Aaron Wren who wrote an article for First Things called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. It's, uh, a number of people picked up on it, and he's talking about how um, Christianity, he's saying it used to be a, a fairly positive thing to be a Christian in our society. It was, it was viewed as to your credit to be a Christian. But then sometime in the 90s, it became a neutral thing. Like, you're a Christian? Okay. That's, you know, whatever works for you. And then around the time of Obergefell, it became a negative thing, right? Because if you're a Christian, you're against progress. You're against justice. You're against all these values. And uh, a lot of evangelicalism has had this winsomeness strategy that's more of a neutral world type of thing. Like if it's neutral, you're going to try and right? The thing about the neutral world is it never lasts. And, and, and I think many people have struggled to make sense of, yeah, it's not, you're not going to winsome your way. You're not going to nice your way <laughs> to acceptability. You're going to have to stand. You're going to have to bear with the scorn, right? You're going to have to be able, be willing to be called racist, sexist, bigot, hater, right? Um, for the cause of righteousness. And Jesus, Jesus promised that. Paul promised that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? So Jesus talked about how we're not above our master. If the world hated him, it's going to hate us. There's a difference between receiving that of your faithfulness and encouraging that because you're a jerk. <laughs> right? That's what 1 Peter 2 is. So don't be a jerk. Most of us aren't very tempted that way. Right? Most of us are more tempted to just, ah, but is there a way I can massage this? You know, just kind of go along to get along. Uh, and there's, there's a need to stand. Uh, and, and part of it, too, comes from our conviction of what's actually loving, right? These things bring death. The, th the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. You follow Christ, it goes well. You rebel against Christ, it won't go well. 
It might seem to go well for a very short time, but in the long run, it's the way of death. And so if we really love our neighbors, we want them to experience the blessing which not in re- there's no blessing in rebellion against Christ. Okay, that's good. Um, so we need to not be unbiblically nice or winsome. Uh, and part of that means, too, that we, we need to be careful about assuming that someone that's being um, condemned by the world just wasn't, they have bad character. Right? When someone takes a stand and it's like, oh, you're a homophobe or you're a, uh, well, then they must just, if they would have done it right, they wouldn't have got that condemnation. No, no, no. These people hate God. They hate his truth. Right? And if you stand for God, they will hate you. Um, and so you have to be prepared for that. Um, we, we also need to have clear definitions. So we've talked about that some. So, for example, when you talk about racism or sexism or anything, uh, the KJV terms are vainglory and enmity. And, and vainglory is sinful partiality, pride, your people, right? Enmity is hatred against them. And so uh, racism is racial vainglory or racial enmity, right? I'm sinfully partial towards whoever I consider us to be, and I'm sinfully hate-filled towards them. Sexism, right? Sinfully partial towards men, sinfully hateful towards women, or vice versa, okay? Uh, And so when we use clear biblical categories, uh, it's not about power. It's not just, well, they have power, so therefore they're racist, sexist, whatever. Um, when we use biblical categories, then we can um, engage biblical, bring biblical solutions, including, ultimately, the hope and redemption of the gospel, right? Only Christianity has a solution to the problems of man. Everything else is just making it worse on some level. Um, and then finally, uh, I think I used this once in a sermon uh, the three C's, so courage, there's a need for courage. Um, was it Lewis who said that uh, courage is not one of the virtues, it's all the virtues at the point of trial, right? It's these virtues being tried. Okay, do you really believe that? Are you, are you really loving? Are you really just? Are you really honest? Are you really, right? Courage is, is working to see that happen. Um, and, and, and cowardice is a sin. It's, it, I think it's interesting in Revelation 21, it's the first sin. Uh, so it talks about the need to conquer the world, that we, that we persevere. So much of Revelation is persevere. The Lord rules and he's coming again, so persevere in faith. And that's how we overcome the world. And the one who overcomes will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, those who give up in the face of hardship, right? Cowardice is a sin. So we have to have courage. There's going to be a cost, uh, but ultimately, and this is what uh, Butterfield said, um, Jesus is worth it. She said, as I read the Bible, Jesus inside me became bigger than me. Uh, I, because she's an English professor and uses proper grammar. Um, right? He's worth it. 
And that's, that's so much of how we glorify God in those hardships. Whether it's suffering, like, you know, a health issue, or um, we say, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to obey him. And if the world hates me, it hates me. Um, that's not my goal, but if it happens, it happens. So courage, clarity. So having clarity on these things, understanding them biblically, not, not weaseling. Um, yeah, there's lots of examples of that. Um, so having clarity on what justice is, on what authority and hierarchy and love and identity. What's it mean to be human? What are our identities? And then conviction. Conviction, like, no, I will not use the pronouns. Right? We, you can't be neutral. There, there's no fence to sit on anymore. Right? <laughs> Choose a side. Stand with Christ. Uh, so we need to be loving and firm and strong and persevering. And, and, and the way we do that is we build our lives on God's word. Right? You read scripture. It's preached to us. It's taught to us. We sit under it. It opens our eyes. It changes our hearts. It deepens our affections. Right? It shows us. It shines its light. And then we oppose evil. Not because we're self-righteous, but because we actually love people. And we don't want them to perish, suffer. Um, but also, it's really important that we build and celebrate the good. So, critical theory is known for what it's against. Christianity ought to be known for what it's for. Right? We're for God and his goodness at work in the world. And so, where God has given you relationships and responsibilities, build those things for his glory and enjoy it, right? Receive the blessings. He's, you know, have feasts appropriately. Enjoy life and enjoy uh, the goodness of who God is and what he's done. Uh, and and uh, build, you know, th- I don't think we're at, um, nearly at the place of Ezra and Nehemiah, but I, I read them recently, and it, it's, it's remarkable. You know, they're, they're building with a sword and a trowel, right? Like, they're under threat. Their enemies are lying about them. They're slandering them to the authorities. They're, you know, they're gossiping, and they're trying to poison them. They're trying to stop them. And they just keep going. And they just keep going. They just keep building. Critical theory is not going to build anything. If we build things, that'll last. By the All worldly systems are inherently destructive. They don't last. They don't build. Christianity builds something that makes a difference. And so we can do that. Um, and it... And then, yeah, rejoice in God's goodness. So, uh, final note, um, just a reminder. So, Jesus has won. He, he defeated sin and death, right? He said, it is finished. It's done. He won. Uh, but the Bible talks about salvation in three senses, past, present, and future. He, he won. He is winning right now, and he will win, right? He's winning. We're here because he's winning, right? He won us. And he's going to win. All of his purposes are going to be fulfilled. And so we can, we can act in confidence of that.